about it, I should be the change. Ain't no doubt about it, you should be the change. Ain't no way around it if you're tired of the same. You wanna make a difference, you should be the change. Oh, oh, oh. yeah, yeah, oh, oh. Yeah, yeah, oh, oh. Yeah, yeah, oh, oh. In January 2003, Governor Rick Perry appointed Albert Hawkins to serve as Executive Commissioner of Health and Human Services for the state of Texas, where he served until September 2009. As Executive Commissioner, Mr. Hawkins headed the Health and Human Services Commission, which provides leadership and strategic direction to the health and human services system in Texas. The Executive Commissioner oversaw the operations of the five health and human service agency within a total budget of 25 billion and more than 50,000 employees across the state. Mr. Hawkins received a bachelor's of arts in government from the University of Texas at Austin in 1975. He received a master's of public affairs from the Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas in 1978 and was awarded an honorary doctorate of public service from the University of North Texas Health Science Center in 2004. Mr. Hawkins has taken his wealth of knowledge and experience in the public sector and created his own company, Public Policy Consulting. So Albert, welcome to the show. We first have to give a shout out to the folks who made this possible. So special thanks to our sponsor, Texas Exes Black Alumni Network for this incredible opportunity to highlight the voices of black alumni. Also, thank you to our parent organization, Texas Exes. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Black Texas X and search Texas X's Black Alumni Network on Facebook and YouTube. Albert, great to see you again. Let's jump into the conversation that I've been waiting for for at least a couple of weeks. And well, the thank real you. question. Yeah, good to see you. Good to see you again. How have good you been? Good to be here with you. I've heard a lot of people talk about the work that you've done. And the first question as I was talking to folks about talking to you and speaking with you today was what exactly are health and human services? I mean, that it sounds like a very basic question, but exactly what is that? And what was your jurisdiction in that area for your career? Well, it actually is a very broad area of government and responsibility that the government has to its citizens. Uh, not just those who are in need, although that's a major part of what's involved, but those uh, who are concerned about the public health of the state. Um, and, uh, and so we provide a broad range of services. At the time that I was executive commissioner, we also provided protective services uh, to both adults and children, uh, as well as uh, regulated nursing homes and, and care for aged and disabled persons. Yeah, it's always interesting to see the, the educational background that some of our speakers and experts have and why they chose the fields that they went into. Why was this, was this a life calling? Was this something that you wanted to do all your life? How did you get involved in the industry? Well, I, as I, I was a government major uh, in undergrad and I'd always been interested in government. And I think, I think my interest uh, in government and public service started uh, in the mid 60s uh, with the passage of great society programs. And uh, I had an opportunity to observe those programs uh, and the impact it had upon persons in, in my neighborhood, in my community. And uh, I was attracted to uh, the ability to be able to reach out and serve a greater number of people through government operations. And so I majored in government uh, when I entered UT. and. Um, and then uh, added to that 
education, the LBJ School Public Affairs uh, experience, uh, which then prepared me for higher levels of government responsibility and service. So your bio says that you advised several presidents and typically when I see that in someone's bio, I always wonder, did they really? I mean, did they really advise the president? What was the daily interaction or even the well, regular interaction like with the presidents that you were working with? Well, I have to confess, I advised one president, uh, but it was a full-time opportunity uh, for me. So I, I did go to work for the administration of George W. Bush, the 43rd president of the United States. Mm -hmm. Actually, I started working for him when he was elected governor of Texas. Right. and advised him uh, as a budget as the budget director for him at that time. And mm -hmm. when he was elected to uh, to the presidency, I accompanied him along with some other of my colleagues here in Texas uh, to serve the nation uh, from the White House. And in that capacity, I uh, served uh, as senior staff person. I was uh, secretary to the cabinet, assistant to the president and secretary to the cabinet. And so I did advise him. Uh, <laughs> you know, usually about um, matters that concerned cabinet agencies and departments, uh, the activities of the secretaries and uh, other issues that, that arose at the time. When you were at Texas and you were kind of envisioning what your life would be like, sometimes when you're interviewed, people say, if we're talking five years from now, what will you be doing? When you were sitting in the classroom at the University of Texas on the 40 acres, what did you think you were going to be doing, even though you majored in government and were interested in that? 10 years, 20, even 30 years after you graduated? You know, I never was one to, um, to try to project myself that far in the future. I had enough trouble figuring out if I could pass my next final, but uh, <laughs> I, did, I did manage that. And, uh, and, and what I focused on doing uh, was not trying to follow some career path um, or, or map it out, but just to do the best I could at the job I had and uh, prepare myself for future opportunities. And that served me well without really having a roadmap or, or game plan in mind for my career. Yeah, you've had a very, very diverse roadmap career. And as we look at what's happening in our country today and in the world today with this global pandemic, when it happened, you know, and, and there's debate on when it happened, but when we started to really react to it and respond to it in March, what were your thoughts, your initial thoughts about how devastating this particular pandemic might be on the country and even the world? Well, it was a great concern. I mean, and while I was executive commissioner, we, we had an experience with a pandemic as well that did not grow as serious as the uh, coronavirus, uh, but we, we dealt with the avian flu um, and, um, and, and it was a major threat uh, but we were able to manage it, and uh, there were some there were some treatments for it, and it did not spread as easily or as rapidly um, as the coronavirus does. And so, I had some exposure to that and realized how significant and serious the issues could be. I had the uh, benefit of the advice from uh, experts in infectious diseases uh, mm -hmm. who helped us plan for how we could deal with it should an outbreak occur. And fortunately, we stockpiled some medications and fortunately, we really did not have to uh, distribute them. Yeah, help us understand what happens when something of this magnitude starts to show up, right? So early stages that this could be something that could possibly spread and could possibly become 
a worldwide, certainly international crisis. What are some of the, the signs, the decisions that are being made and conversations that you're having potentially with your teams when something is at the early stages of it as we were in March? Well, it's always unclear. I mean, as you go forward and you have so many threats that arise um, that is, is difficult to distinguish uh, something that poses a real um, threat to you and those, those kinds of things that may manifest itself for a little while and then dissipate itself. And so, so you follow some basic steps, but if you've ever heard uh, the phrase, the fog of war, I mean, I, I think that's, that's what it feels like. You get a lot of information that's incomplete, uh, that's some, sometimes conflicting. Uh, you, you, there's not a great deal of knowledge or experience as to what should happen. And so you try to, you try to plot out a course of action that makes sense for where you are and to keep monitoring the situation. And as it grows worse, you ramp up your response based on that. Mm -hmm. One of the biggest challenges, and I know as a consumer, folks who are watching this now is how do you know what's credible information, right? So we're hearing this in athletics in March and then they shut down sports and killed sports and killed March Madness and everybody thought the world was ending. And you started to get pieces of information here and pieces of information there. How as a consumer do you, and as an individual who cares about their health and the health of their communities, how do you start to decide and assess what's credible information and what is not? It is a real challenge and it continues to be a challenge. And so I think you have to look at some well-established sources of information. Uh, public health entities uh, that have uh, solid reputations of supporting uh, public interests and public needs over time I think mm -hmm. are, are the place you would go. I, I think our, our, our governmental uh, sources are reliable. Uh, we, we staff them both at the federal and the state and the local level with uh, experts in those fields. And, um, and their job is to stay abreast of what those uh, developments are, what the risks are and what the threats are and how you would mitigate those risks. And so you would always follow their advice. Um, you, you have to factor in though whatever other societal or environmental considerations that may apply and, and reach a more balanced and effective approach. So we are eight months, some would argue longer than that into this pandemic. And candidly, I've been in and out of information gathering. You know, sometimes you get to a point where it's like so much information and then there's a lot of conflicting information. So now we're hearing that we are very close to a vaccine your 30 plus years in the business, if you will. How realistic is it to think that we are that close to getting this thing under control and even getting a vaccine to market? Well, it's a remarkable accomplishment. I mean, we've never, there's never been an effort that has resulted in uh, a safe and effective vaccine this quickly. Uh, but with the, with the resources from around the world, and the resources that our government, our federal government put into it, because we're, we're talking billions of dollars invested in the research and development that in other times would have been capital put at risk by, by private entities, which means they would risk their money. So they, they do it on a much smaller and slower scale uh, because they're playing with their own money. 
when you're playing with government's money, uh, you can you can do it bigger and faster uh, because if you're wrong, well, you lost money, but the government lost money. So yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it's an it's an it's an amazing accomplishment, um, and I think it is credible. I mean, I think we can rely on on the uh, regulatory authorities of government across the world. It's not just it's not just the United States. Is is uh, Great Britain? Is is the United Kingdom? Uh, is France? Is Canada? I mean, all all of the authorities around the world have been collaborating and cooperating on this. Uh, when you have a worldwide threat like this, I mean, it brings people together. And the competition uh, between the countries and the companies has been has been good. And so we'll have at least three different vaccines um, that uh, should be through our approval process by the end of the year, the first of 21. Wow. Uh, and that's just, that's just remarkable. I, I, I think it's going to be uh, incumbent upon everyone to consult with their own primary care physician as to which vaccine uh, might be most suitable for them. Uh, mm -hmm. But I think you'll have those choices. So the real question, Albert, now that folks who are watching and listening are, are wanting to know is, okay, so the vaccines may become available and it's a record time and it's very credible. Should black folks really buy into, we know the history in this country of us being test dummies, if you will, as someone said, or you know, guinea yeah. pigs and those kinds of things. Should we believe the, and really take advantage of the opportunities to be early testers, beta testers for these vaccines? Yeah, I, I think there's no there's no reason to uh, to fear uh, on that basis. Uh, I mean, no qualms about that. It's not a Tuskegee Institute, you know, kind of experiment going on, Tuskegee Airmen uh, going on. Um, but um, you know, there are always um, you know some some effects from any vaccine, uh, and particularly new ones when you don't know. Uh, how, how long it might be effective, what other kinds of conditions. I mean, you can go through the trials, the clinical trials, and it reveals quite a bit, uh, but, but a widespread immunization will, will frequently reveal other, other kinds of effects. But mm -hmm. don't, it's, it's nothing that I think persons of African descent ought to, ought to particularly be concerned about. Yeah, it's, it's uh, as you know, our longstanding distrust of the system, yes. whatever those systems are, and, and understanding that even though they, this vaccine may come to market, there's, there's some shadiness. There's always that element yeah. of, I don't know if we, should, if we should really be buying into what's happening here. So I'm yeah, glad to hear- Yeah, I think what we have more to fear is the effect of the virus on us, particularly because of uh, underlying conditions uh, yeah. or, or comorbidities. I mean, so we have a high propensity of, uh, of uh, diabetes, high blood pressure, uh, other COPD, other, other underlying diseases yes. uh, that this virus just aggravates. And, and, and that's why our fatality rate, uh, once, once the virus is contracted, that's why our, our fatality rate is higher. That's such a great point. And I, I wanna delve a little bit more into that because when initially the statistics were coming out about why we were affected and impacted more, 
than other ethnicities. It was it had a lot to do with, oh, well, Blacks are, African-Americans are working in more of those essential jobs. Yeah. And so they have to go to work and they have to do that. But what you just said about the underlying conditions for me speaks a lot to our ability to, to minimize the impact of this virus. If we can take care of our, take care of ourselves so that we are not diabetic, so that we're not you know, into some of those other areas. So let's talk a little bit about what we can do on the proactive end to make sure we're not, you know, the first ones to go, if you will. Yes, right. But I, I don't want to dismiss those other social determinants that you, you okay. referenced because we do tend to, uh, to uh, be in jobs that are maybe more easily exposed uh, to the virus because we don't have the uh, option of working from home. Um, you know, and you might have to use public transportation. You might be in in in, in jobs that expose you more to mm -hmm. persons uh, with a virus, and so you 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 have a higher risk of of it being transmitted to you. Uh, but because of those underlying conditions, you have a higher risk of it being more harmful to you long term, uh, mm -hmm. and even even mortal. And so. The uh, the basic advice uh, that that uh, public health uh, professionals have provided us for years still applies, but it's it's a long term change, and that is to uh, to uh, moderate your diet, um, to make sure you eat more balanced and less high fat, uh, less cholesterol, uh, that you exercise, and that you have regular checkups. So one of the uh, one of the most preventable diseases uh, is hypertension. And uh, we, we experience high rates of that, but it goes untreated. And right. uh, at, at least, you know, I, you know, diagnose it and, and follow the treatment. And, uh, and it's, it's, it's one of the more manageable uh, diseases uh, that we know of. So mm -hmm. uh, there's not much reason uh, for us not to do better in that regard. So a couple of things, number one, COVID, let's, let's, even if we talk, had this conversation and COVID did not exist, if we just talk about the health, the future of African-Americans and our, our well-being in general, what would you say are three of the three of the health crises in our communities right now that we need to be paying attention to? I know hypertension is one of them, but what are the other two? Yeah. Well, I mean, diabetes, you touched on that, as, as well as uh, COPD and uh, our problems with COPD, emphysema or bronchitis or however you might want to, uh, to um, express it more specifically, yeah. really has to do with uh, some of our tendencies toward uh, tobacco products. Um, and, uh, and so that really makes us more susceptible to those, mm -hmm. those kinds of diseases. Uh, and so that's why it's important uh, for our young folks to recognize the dangers and risk of long-term smoking. Yeah. And, uh, and I, speak, I speak to that as a former smoker. So, mm -hmm. uh, and, and I, know it's, I know it's difficult and a challenge to stop, but it, it does add to um, our longer-term morbidity. Uh, when now, when you say right, and when you start saying tobacco, I can hear some of my cousins saying, now, are you talking about tobacco or perhaps are you talking about CBD products or weed? Is that anywhere well, in the picture? And what is the impact of that on us? I, you know, I haven't seen a lot of a lot of uh, research uh, and, and, you know, I'm no expert, but I haven't seen a lot of things written about 
uh, weed or CBD and its longer term effects. I mean, but mm -hmm. you might recall now uh, over 50 or 60 years, the research went on on the uh, effect of smoking tobacco. Right. And yes. so, and, and, and then the science became uh, really clear. And so mm -hmm. I, I think we're in the process of letting the science become clear about uh, whether marijuana smoking has the same kinds of effects. Yep, yeah. You know what's really growing in our community are the, what do you call those vaping. mechanicals? Yes. Yeah, vaping. Let's talk and, about uh, that because I have and, members in my family who do that and I, I'm like, they, they think, oh no, it's better. It's, it's much better than, than regular smoking. Can you talk a little bit well, about I'll, that? I'll tell you, yeah, I'll tell you one thing. The health professionals are pretty united in their opinion that that is bad. You know, and so uh, while people while people first considered it uh, as an alternative, a better yeah. alternative to smoking, um, apparently there are other chemicals that right. are mixed in there that that have um, unknown and and uh, effects that are more highly feared than mm -hmm. just tobacco. I mean, and that's not I, the nicotine is there, of course, but the other chemicals that are used. And yeah, uh, yeah. It, it may create more serious uh, health ramifications than, than we know of. But the health professionals, they're all united in their opinion about that being bad. So <laughs> it's bad. I, I, no, I'm I no I'm no doctor, but I concur. Yeah, right, all my right. research shows that. All my research shows that. So let's turn our attention, Albert, to the administration's impact on, on us, candidly, on Black folks and their health and you know these kinds of concerns so with the the incumbent and then of course with the president-elect assuming we can finally say that the president-elect what well, do you think that black folks in terms of their health and human services are in a better position with the incoming administration than they were with previous administrations and previous can be any any others what do you what position and what shape do you think we're in with the folks well, who are coming I, in I, I, I do I do think it'll be Im improved because of the uh, focus uh, that might be placed on it and uh, just the messaging that uh, it's a priority and, and it's a, a real priority and that you should you should pay attention to that and that kind of messaging I think is necessary uh, when you're trying to reach the masses uh, and educate them about their need uh, to um, to follow certain health practices, uh, then it has to be, it has to be consistent, it has to be constant and continuous. And, uh, and that's not a message that this administration has put forward, but the next one may. And uh, it, it just, it's a sustained effort, you know, to get that, get that through to people. And so I think that'd be helpful. One more question before we talk a little bit about the University of Texas, and that is, one of the things that I've said privately and publicly is that we have to get more engaged in the world that we want to see. We got to pick up a stick and fight for something. And what is it from a health and human services standpoint? What are some of the things that we can have impact on? I'm particularly concerned with what's happening with Black women and their diagnoses and their treatment and you know access to healthcare and those kinds of things. What are a couple of the issues that folks who are watching or listening to us now can turn their antenna up and start to get involved and actively engaged in changing those things for us? Well, I, I think um, you touched on it. I mean, I think uh, maternal, black maternal health is a critical issue. And um, 
uh, it, we've had long term, we've long for a long time, we've had an issue with premature births, but now mm -hmm. our child death rate uh, is is exceedingly high compared to other racial and ethnic groups, and there's not a reason for that. And wow. so we we have to reach out for more. We have to we have to educate um, you know the population so that they understand the need for early prenatal care. Um, yes. I, think, I think you can advocate to our government about expanding and extending uh, Medicaid services to that population so that, so that they have early access to, um, to medical care. And so that, that certainly is one, that certainly is one area. All right, let's talk a little bit about the eyes of Texas. <laughs> random, right. random, random conversation here. The eyes of Texas. If I just throw it out there, I roll out the ball and I go, the eyes of Texas, what do you think? Uh, well, uh, I, you're referring to the, to the song, uh, the, uh, well, I, <laughs> I have a, I have a thought that may be different from, from what I've heard expressed, uh, okay. from other African-Americans. I don't find, I don't find the song to be offensive. Um, I don't, I don't find the, the lyrics, um, the, uh, the meaning of the lyrics are, are his use to be racist in, in this nature. I mean, uh, mm -hmm. and, and, and I've, I've followed the debate, you know, fairly closely. And I understand, you know, the uh, perception, uh, perspective that others might have on it, but I don't, I don't believe uh, that it has a racist origin mm -hmm. uh, it didn't originate at a menstrual show it was it it was debuted uh, at a menstrual show it was premiered there and menstrual shows in those days were for um, regular and frequent I mean you know it was it may be like uh, us having a step show you know is uh, they they had them weekly I mean and so that was just a natural place for the the uh, writers of the song to roll it out and, and present it. But that that in itself to me does not make it racist. Um, and I and I do understand uh, or try to understand the perspective that that uh, others are expressing. Uh, but it seems to me that if you if you look back at, at the University of Texas and and in the broader historical context mm -hmm. that Texas, the state of, uh, was a part of the Confederacy. So it's a historical fact that it was a racist society. I mean, so that's, right. that's, not, that's not a new revelation. And, mm -hmm. and that um, there are symbols of the Confederacy uh, that are on the university grounds. Uh, it's, not, it's not a surprise it's, or, or any other southern state, I mean, and, and and that's just a fact of that's just a remnant of our history. But you know, it's long been said that um, the United States' uh, birth defect was uh, slavery, and uh, we're still we're still experiencing the uh, the uh, ex the uh, aftermaths of of that. So, but no, I, the song itself I don't find to be offensive. I mean, I. I, I just look at it in a different context, in a broader context, I think, the historical context. And, and it, um, 
just wasn't. And because it was, it was sung at um, a menstrual show, in my view, doesn't, doesn't make it any more racist than the fact that the Klan used to sing Amazing Grace. I mean, right. you know, it's, that, that, that doesn't make that a racist song. Although it was written by uh, a former slave trader too. So, but uh, yeah, great perspective. Very great perspective. So you started your own consulting company. Let's talk just finally about what you're doing. You moved from the public sector to the private sector. How how's life in the private sector, and how's your business going? Well, I do like life in the pr private sector, but I must confess that uh, I'm I'm at the uh, intersection of the private sector and the public sector. So uh, what I've tried to do is um, to um, leverage what I've learned uh, through my 30 plus years in government about how government works and what it needs to work better uh, and take that knowledge to uh, private companies who engage with government uh, to deliver services and help them understand how to structure their services more effectively, how to deliver the results that government is seeking. And so uh, in that respect, I, I mean, I've found it to be um, um, very, uh, very rewarding and uh, it's still enjoyable. So I, I get to uh, participate in some, some public policy uh, activities, uh, but also um, get to see the services being directly influenced by uh, what I'm able to share. Perfect. Good. It's been a pleasure speaking with you, getting to hear a little bit more about what you do. And I especially love the mandates that I felt them as mandates for us to get involved and get connected to how we can help our public servants be better at serving us. So I yes. appreciate your time tonight. Really appreciate sure. it. And welcome. Special thanks to our sponsor, Texas X's Black Alumni Network, for this incredible opportunity to highlight the voices of Black alumni. Also, thanks to our parent organization, Texas X's. Please follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Black Texas X and search Texas X's Black Alumni Network on Facebook and YouTube.